You're listening to a message from Mercy Culture Church, home of Pastor Landon and Heather Schott in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information about Mercy Culture and ways that you can be a part of it, visit mercyculture.com. Ah, oh, bless the Lord. Come on. <laughs> Come on, that's pretty good for me. Let's do that for Jesus. Though. We love you, Lord. We bless your name, God. Ah, it's such an honor to be in the house today. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord. But uh, here with my amazing wife, De Havilland. Oh, my goodness, yeah. (laughs) And uh, she's amazing. And uh, can we give it a fire? You know what I love about our church? One, I've always wanted to be in a church that that would do a 40-day fast together. It's been 20 yeah, it's been almost 30 years since I've been in a church where we did a 40-day fast together as a corporate church. Isn't that amazing? And to me, the thing that was so beautiful about it, in the midst of all the stuff that's going on with revival, how many of you know about the revival going on at Asbury? I mean, authentic revival. I mean, it's, it's one thing when Reverend, you know, Reverend Wonderful and, and brother, brother Flip Flop show up in town, but it's another thing when God shows up. And it's about a nameless, faceless, placeless move of the spirit. That's what's happening to Asbury. That's what's happening at Lee University. And several other places is breaking out. We're going to talk about a little bit of that today. Uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. And revival has a way of expressing itself different ways. So, uh, you know, if, it's, if you don't see all the bells and the whistles that you, you thought you would see from revival, it doesn't look like Azusa Street per se. It doesn't look like this one or that one. But I love my friend Lou Engle says, he says, uh, when people are asking them about different moves of the Spirit and revival, Lou said, well, I mean, they were being pretty critical. Lou said, well, the thing I've learned is this. When the ark is on the move, don't be like Uzzah. When the ark is on the move, don't touch it. Listen, y'all, the ark is on the move in our nation right now. We bless every place where there's a move of the Spirit. We bless every place where God is breaking out. We bless every place where God's glory is being released. And we say, God, we thank you for what you're doing there, but do it here. Do it in Fort Worth. Do it through mercy culture. Do it right here, Lord. Every life-giving church in Fort Worth, every life-giving church all over Dallas, Fort Worth, in the name of Jesus, every place where hungry people are showing up, God, I'm asking you in Jesus' name, let your glory be revealed. And I'm so thankful for a pastor. Landon shot, Heather shot. The first message they have us listen to after a 40-day fast is on how to have a better marriage. Listen, this revival is going to start in the home. It's going to start with family. Because we've had revivals in the past, and I'm going to talk a lot about moves of the Spirit and revival today. And uh, we've had revivals in the past, and you know what we did? We went straight to the Holy of Holies, and we walked right past the table of showbread. And we lost churches. Some of y'all have been around, you know what I'm talking about. We lost churches, we lost family members, whatever. We're not going to have another revival without being at the table of the Lord together. So... That being said, turn with me in your Bibles or turn in your Bibles. <laughs> We're going to talk about Paul's relationship revelation. And so if you would go to um, 
Acts, Acts chapter 21. Acts 21 and look at uh, verse 27 as I try to get my cheetahs on. Come out in Jesus' name. <laughs> Acts 21. Twenty-seven. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir upon, upon the multitude and laid hands on him. I'm talking about Paul. Laid hands on Paul, crying out, Men of Israel, come out to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian, or some of your translations say Trophimus from Ephesus in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, they were trying to kill him. For taking Trophimus from Ephesus behind the dividing wall. Why? We'll get to that later. A report came up to the commander of the Roman court. All Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, meaning they were continually beating Paul for his relationship with a non-Jew because he was trying to get him into a place of encounter with the living God. Now flip to Ephesians chapter 2 and we'll pray. Ephesians 2, verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, who is Ephesians reading to? Ephesians. Where was Trophimus from? Ephesus. So this is to his cousins and them. But now in Christ Jesus, you are formerly afar off and brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two and the one new man thus established in peace. Today we're going to talk about Paul's relationship revelation and what all this has to do with revival right now and spiritual awakening. So, Lord, we love you. Thank you for taking us on the other side of your wall, Jesus. To go into deeper places of intimacy with you and fellowship with others. Help us to be carriers of glory in this hour. Give us the grace to respond to your voice in this thing, God. Ask you to increase our hunger level. Ask that we will be living sacrifices in this hour, that we can be the very fuel for the fire that you want to release over Fort Worth, over Dallas, and the nations of the earth. God, we ask you to show us your glory.
Deal with our religious blinders. Shake everything that can be shaken in us and in this nation. So generations even yet to be created could praise you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. We're going to do a lot of Bible thumping and hitting on different scriptures, but uh, a lot of this was born out of my fast. Uh, most of this message was. And so uh, one of my connect with God ways, my, my connect, the way I connect with God, three ways. One, remembrance, right? You know, because I love history. Those who know me know I love history. And then the other one is meditation, right? My wife and kids know that because when she's trying to get my attention, she can't because I'm, I'm transfixed on something, right? I'm in some daydream. I'm just meditating on something. Uh, but my first one, y'all, is learning. I feel like I got saved all over again when I found that out. Because it made, it made sense to me. I was like, oh, my God. So I, I see God and hear God even when I'm not reading Scripture and learning Scripture. I, I see what, how God is thinking through different things that people are talking about with science, history, other things. And so I get lost in that from time to time. And so um, I ran across this thing during this time of fasting that God had me transfixed on, this crazy story from the 90s, all right? There was this gentleman in the 90s, two gentlemen, matter of fact, they decided to go out and rob a bank. And one of them said to the other, said, well, I have the exact way we can do this without the surveillance cameras even picking us up. We don't even have to wear stocking masks or anything. We'll be fine. And so they went out and robbed not one bank, but two. And one day, looked in the cameras and kind of smiled. And of course, the police got the surveillance video, gave it, to the, um, <laughs> gave it to the local news, showed it, and before midnight, both guys got picked up. And one of them, when they picked him up, he said, but I had the juice. That's what he said on the way to the police station. And they thought, what does he mean, he had the juice? So they pulled him out, put him in the questioning room. So what do you mean you had the juice? He said, well, I did my research. See, a friend told me that the key component in invisible ink is lemon juice. So we figured that if we put lemon juice on our face, there's no way the surveillance camera could pick us up. He said, I even tested it out. I took a Polaroid camera. How many of you know those Polaroid cameras from back in the day, right, with those cartridges? They didn't work all the time. He said, I even took a Polaroid camera, and I put lemon juice on my face, and when I took a picture of my face, when the image came out, there was nothing on it. They probably had a bad cartridge, right? Or he probably missed his face when he took the picture. He said, so we went out, and he said, so I was actually trying to figure out how did y'all catch us? So the police officers kind of looked at each other and said, uh, the surveillance video. And this gentleman said, no, there's no way you picked me up from the surveillance video. He refused to believe him. So I said, okay, we'll show you the video. They showed him the video, and he said, y'all doctored it. You fixed that. You done something to it. There's no way you picked me up because I had the juice on. And so two social psychologists found out about this, and so they interviewed that gentleman and others, and they developed this study of what they call metacognition, about how people learn. Listen, the deal is people have so much information out there right now 
And us MC learners, we got to watch this. <laughs> There's so much information out there. You start learning one thing, and all you know is what, all you know is the tip of the iceberg of what you think you know, and you are totally clueless about the rest of the iceberg that you have no clue about. And you become so excited and so, so zealous about it, you start telling people, and because you're speaking with such certainty, and what are people drawn to? Certainty. You speak about it with such certainty, they're, like, they're drawn to it too, and they're drawn by your excitement, but they don't realize you're competently incompetent. You're confidently, better way to say it, you're confidently incompetent, and you don't even realize it. You're blind to the whole thing. And that's the thing that's going on right now. And so, you, you know, y'all have seen that person, you know, you had Thanksgiving or Christmas, and you're just kind of looking at your phone, and you're doing Google while they're talking, and you're like, I wonder if he knows how off he really is on this thing. But he's pretty well convinced of it. <laughs> you know, and then you got the student in the room is like, uh... Hey, that doesn't sound right. I've learned a little bit about that, but they, they don't feel too confident to step out and say anything. But then you have the expert in the room who's, you know, expert, but he's humble and he's confident and he's going, oh, it's going to take a while to unpack this. Let me just wait till he finishes. Well, I was looking at this, what it is to be confidently incompetent. And I realized, oh my God, I realized God has me understanding this because it's, it's a form of self-deception. And I realized this really describes a religious spirit. You become so blind, <laughs> you set up these walls of understanding about one thing and you become the expert in everything, right? Especially one particular facet. And so another definition I've come up with for religious spirit is this. Religious spirit is one of the highest forms of self-deception because here's the deal. When you're right, you know it. When you're wrong, you know it. But when you're deceived, you don't have a clue. <laughs> Here's my definition for religious spirit, new definition. When what you think you know, you don't know it, you think you know it. When what you think you know defines all you think there is to know about God and each other about God and others. So I, I went through a period where I had to detox from religious spirit in my own life. Uh, so I put, this, put together this document called Confessions of a Recovering Pharisee. <laughs> Still recovering, right? Still recovering Pharisee. Uh, maybe not as bad as I used to be, but I think the Havilland said it a little bit louder than everybody else that she, she gave it the biggest whoop in the whole room. <laughs> <laughs> so some of, these, some of these are fun. I want to just read off a list of these, all right? But you can just find these in your notes. Uh, the thing is, uh, these, are, these are kind of funny. Some of them are serious, but here's the deal. You might have a religious spirit if where you sit in church means way too much to you. You might have a religious spirit if wearing a suit on Sunday means way too much to you. You might have a religious spirit if, you, if wearing a T-shirt and blue jeans at church on Sunday means way too much to you. Emphasis there, way too much to you, means way too much to you. You might have a religious spirit if you think the more money you have, the more spiritual you are. You might have a religious spirit if you think the less money you have, the more spiritual you are. And all the people who are part of the prayer movement said, 
Yeah, we've seen that one before. You might have religious spirit if you think the... If you, <laughs> I read that one. You might have religious spirit if you're constantly striving towards innocence because you always feel guilty. You might have religious spirit if people must call you by your title before they say your name. You might have religious spirit if you refuse to say somebody's title before you say their name. You might have religious spirit if you judge others by, your, uh, by their actions, but you judge yourself by your intentions. You might have religious spirit if you insist you don't have a religious spirit. You might have a religious spirit if you're more focused on pleasing people more than pleasing God. Here's the deal. When you seek to please God, you will serve people. But when you seek to please people, sooner or later you will stop serving God. You might have a religious spirit if how things look more, matters more than how things really are, which means how things truly are never get addressed. You might have a religious spirit if you major in the minors and sacrifice innocent people on the altar of your distinctives for the sake of being right. You might have a religious spirit if you rather have people know how much you know instead of know how much you care. You might have a religious spirit if you always say the right thing, but you never say the real thing. You might have religious spirit if you thank God that you're not like the lesser Christians. You might have religious spirit if in your mind, your spiritual equity goes up in proportion to the well-known people that you know and name drop. You might have religious spirit if you cannot receive a rebuke or correction. You might have religious spirit if you're always rebuking and correcting others and harshly. You might have religious spirit if you believe biblical spiritual encounters of others are only valid as long as you've experienced them yourself. You might have religious spirit if prayer becomes mechanical and you feel relieved when your prayer time is over and you finish your prayer list. If that's the case, consider your condition. I know about this one because he's the deal is this. When your conversation is over with somebody that you love, you don't feel relief and check them off your list. You might have a religious spirit if you pray more to be seen in public than in private. You might have a religious spirit if you embellish spiritual encounters and testimonies. You might have a religious spirit if you place more emphasis on what is wrong with churches and other people. You might have a religious spirit if you believe God has appointed you to fix everybody else. And there's more on the list, but the deal is this. And finally, you might have a religious spirit if the entire time I was reading this, you was thinking all the other people that need to hear this instead of you. <laughs> the religious spirit. You know what happens? It's not about relationship. It's all about religious form. It's all about performance. It's all about Formula. So I'm going to take my time and unpack this a little bit more than I did in the first service. Because you need to understand, we need to understand God is dealing with the religious spirit because we can't have the move of the spirit that God wants to bring with a religious spirit in the house. Different ways, I'll spend more time focusing on one of these, but the first one is life over God. Life over God, that's where... You focus more on God's principles without knowing the person. In other words, you know more about the book of the Lord than you know about the Lord of the book. I mean, it's not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. And sometimes our mind gets in the way. I know that because I've done that. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, tell you about that later. Uh, Life under God, that's where you're striving towards legalistic, sinless perfection, and you're just afraid God's going to crush you, and you're afraid to approach him, afraid to be vulnerable and real and exposed before him, so you try to have a sinless, 
striving towards innocent and legalistic approach to life where you perform, perform, perform to make God like you. Or life for God. Life for God, that's where you are cause-oriented and you focus on all these causes for Christ to earn his love and acceptance. And this comes in different ways. When you focus more on the cause and you spend all that time at the abortion clinic, praying in front of that clinic, trying to help that, help that person in human trafficking, and you're focusing on ending human trafficking, or you're building those water wells in Africa. But what happens when you're so focused on a cause and that girl that you're talking to at the crisis pregnancy center, all of a sudden she goes on ahead and she has the abortion. What happens when that girl you've been trying to help get away from that pimp goes right back to the pimp and goes right back into sex trafficking? What happens when the people in Africa that don't want your water wells, they turn you down? What do you do when your cause is taken away from you? I have some more kids. I'm, I'm fighting a pro-life movement and everything else. I have kids that I still pray for today that are sitting on a bar stool someday because they came disillusioned with God because things didn't happen the way they thought they were going to happen with their cause. And they became disillusioned. But the worst one is, the worst one of these is life from God. That's the consumer mentality. It's where God becomes like our genie in a bottle. And we rub the, rub the ball the right way. We expect God to do this for us and do that for us. And when that happens, you have a consumer mentality. And much of the American church is like this. Because it's all about felt needs and what people need. And we find out those things and we stroke them in those areas. And so you have so many churches built around felt needs and all these different things. Nobody's taking time to feel what God wants to have. And we make church less comfortable with God and more comfortable for us and our stages of life. And so we have this consumer approach to God and now we care about what he can do for us instead of who he is. We care more about the utilitarian purpose of what God can do for us instead of the intrinsic value of who he is. All right? I'll give you an ugly example of what this looks like. There's this uh, village in Cambodia that this one missionary is going to. And he noticed all along the way, all these Fortune 500 firms, these huge factories that were shut down, that were dormant. He's driving past all those on his way to an orphanage for all these kids who have been abandoned by their parents. And so he's driving along and he asks the guy who's, you know, driving is like, what happened to these factories? He said, oh, well, these factories were here because Cambodia came along to those companies and said, hey, we'll make all your wares for you and all the things you want a whole lot cheaper than you can do it in America and any other place around the world. And so they built the huge factory there. But then another rogue government came along and said, hey, we'll give you a better labor deal than Cambodia. And they shut those factories down overnight without any thought or concern for the women who work there. And so when the factory shut down, guess who rushed in? The money launderers, or not the money, but the money lenders who are actually sex traffickers. And so the women came in, they got used to a certain level of income. They came into that area and lent the money. Of course, they couldn't pay off the debt, and then they wound up in sex slavery. And the men would come into that village in Cambodia to sell their wares. They were farmers, they would hook up with the prostitutes and an AIDS epidemic broke out in that community. And the reason why the orphanage was there was because of the AIDS epidemic that broke out. 
because the companies didn't care anything about the people who work there. All they cared about what they could do for them. They didn't care about who they were. But we don't think about that either. When we're shopping someplace and we're going through and looking at different clothes and we're thinking that, you know, just the utility of, what will, you know, will this make a good gift for that person or will this go with those pants or whatever? In other words, all we think about is what it could do for us. We don't think about the backstory, And that's what happens with these kind of things. You care less about the backstory when you have a consumer mentality. And when people and things just become commodities, it's all about what it can do for you instead of the intrinsic value of what it is or who they are. It's a pretty horrible thing when we commodify God. When God becomes all about what he can do for us. You know, that whole story, and this is what it looks like. Uh, you know, Jesus, that whole story you have about uh, down on the cross for our sins, that's great. But here's the deal. I have this thing with a bad hip. Can you do something about that? Um, you know, I have some things I need to work on in my marriage. You got any principles for marriage you can help me with? Uh, what if, you know, I got this business that I'm working on. Can you give me some principles for my business? In other words, it all becomes about what he can do for us instead of who he is. So it's not about life over God, life under God, life for God, life from God. Y'all, it's about life with God. God's looking for some people who will be, what, come what will, come what may. I'm not coming to date you, God, for good or for worse, rich or for poor. I'm yours and you are mine. Let's do this, Jesus. So God is looking for some people who want to be married to the Lamb. And the problem is we have misunderstood what the anointing is all about. That's how we got to where we are. This consumer mind. See, the anointing, first and foremost, to go back and look at that in Exodus 30, did you know the anointing, first and foremost, before it was anything, was just simply perfume? Perfume. Made by an apothecary, which is a perfumer. Some of your translations would say made by the perfumer. And no one else could wear that fragrance in all of Israel except the priests and the things in the temple. It was a set-apart fragrance. If anybody else made it, they would be cut off from Israel. Exclusive fragrance. God helped me understand what he meant by this when he talked about an exclusive fragrance. I remember looking at TV once and there was this gazillionaire who had just got married and he decided to buy a perfume factory just for he and his wife. So he buys a perfume factory and makes a fragrance just for he and his wife. Had Yves Saint Laurent create the fragrance for both of them and then he bought the rights to it away from Yves Saint Laurent so that no one else could have that fragrance except for he and his wife. I thought, what a waste. He could have used that money for something else, but the Lord said, no, 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 you don't understand. When that lady walks into a room, if the wind hits the right way, her essence flows into the room before she ever shows up because no other woman on the face of the earth has that same fragrance. So... What's that old MasterCard commercial, House in the Hamptons, what, $15 million? Blue Hope Diamond, $20 million, but a fragrant relationship that can't be reproduced? Priceless. That's what the anointing is. It was a, a, a fragrance that was to be placed on people who are in a set-apart, consecrated relationship to minister to the Lord. Now, let's say that woman had that fragrance on her husband. 
center across the room to get some coffee. Every eye would turn as they smelled that fragrance on her. But then after she got the coffee, she would lead them right back over to the object of her affection. That's what you're supposed to do with your anointing. As you're seeking to please the Lord and you're serving him, you're supposed to lead everybody back over to the object of your affection. Let's say, he said, you know, honey, it would really please me if you would give my friend some coffee. Yeah, she would give that friend coffee, but then she would tell him, you know, this came from my husband. So in her anointing, she's pleasing her, her husband, but then she's serving others at the same time. That's what we're supposed to do with our anointing. Because when you please God, you're going to serve people. But when you start pleasing people, sooner or later you will stop serving God. With lemon juice on your face and think nobody else can recognize. <laughs> what does that look like? Go with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel 44. There was a time in the ministry, in the temple, where God actually judged the priesthood, and the great, he, he released one of the greatest judgments I've ever seen in the Bible upon this priesthood. Look at Ezekiel 44, start at verse 10. Ezekiel 44. These group of priests actually brought compromise and idolatry into the temple. And look how God judges them. Says this, Ezekiel 44, 10. But the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols shall bear the punishment for their iniquity, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary. Y'all catch that? They shall bear their punishment by being ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, say for the people. And they shall stand before them to minister to them because they ministered to them before the idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity in the house of Israel. Therefore, I have sworn against them, declares the Lord, that they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity and they shall not come near to me to serve me as a priest to me and nor come near me to any of my holy things, the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Yet while I will appoint them, to keep charge of the house. In other words, they're going to stay in the ministry of all this service and all that shall be done. In other words, these priests, because every priest had to be anointed, they're anointed, but because of their idolatry and they wanted ministry, more than they wanted intimacy with the Lord, God says, okay, I'm judging you. And so your judgment is you get to do the ministry without me. They had ministry without intimacy with the living God. And the whole time they had to wear wool the whole time. But they were anointed. And they had to do it for the people. You know what he, when he says for the people? In other words, they had to do it for the people's approval. They had to do it for the people's acceptance. They had to jump through all the hoops to earn their acceptance, to earn their approval. They could never do anything enough on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram. They had to look over every single opinion that anybody thought about them and make sure they did everything right because they were doing it for the people. 
You wonder why we have so many pastors and leaders and ministers falling right now? It's because they're anointed. They have power in their life because the anointing does that. It's like going from a handsaw to a buzzsaw in ministry. It makes everything you do easier and better. But when you focus on pleasing people with it, you're going to build a crowd without the cloud. You don't minister, you don't measure ministry influence by how many people are following you on Facebook and Twitter and who gets the hearts and the likes. There are people who have more people on, on, on their Instagram following than a whole lot of other folks that I know, but they can't move angels and demons with the sound of their voice because they don't know how to move the heart of God. They have no intimacy on in their life, but they're anointed. The gifts and the callings of God without repentance and they're sweating it out the whole time. Look what happens to these next people. But to the Zadok priest, verse 15, the sons of Zadok who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall keep, they shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer the fat and the blood, declares the Lord. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and to keep my charge. And it shall be that when they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments and wool should not be on them while they are ministering at the gates of the inner court and in the house. Linen turbans shall be on their heads and linen undergarments shall be on their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything that shall make them sweat. So they didn't minister for the people. They ministered to the Lord. Did you notice it didn't say for the Lord? It says to the Lord. You know why? They already had his approval. They already had his acceptance. They already had intimacy with him. And as they ministered to him, they served the people. And they didn't sweat the whole time. You know why? Because ministry is easy in the presence of the Lord, as Leonard Schott always says. <laughs> so you had two ministries going on at the same time. And they're both carrying out the same functions. Both were anointed. But one was under judgment and one wasn't. And the only way you could tell the difference was one was sweating and the other one wasn't. That's pretty much where we are right now. God, give me a no-sweat ministry. Break our hearts for the things that break your heart for real, God. Take us to a deeper place of intimacy and fellowship with you. And help us to use our anointings the right way. Anointing is a false finish line. Helps us to do everything better, but it still smells like man at the end of the day. And it's meant for us to minister to him. Because here's the deal. When we minister to him, oh, that's when we can go into another realm and go behind the wall and encounter the glory. But let me give you another example of somebody who ministered under the anointing the right way. Go to Mark 14. Mark 14. Verse 1. Now Passover, unleavened bread, was two days off. And the chief priests and the scribes were sick and how they could seize him by stealth and the killer. Talking about Jesus. For they were saying, not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. 
And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, saying, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. I love the way the Amplifier says it. It says, what she has done to me is a good and beautiful thing. This perfume, Pastor has talked a lot about it, it's powerful. But this <clears throat> alabaster box she broke in with, most scholars say that, one, it was worth about a one year's wages. The average American makes about $50,000. Imagine $50,000 worth of perfume. But other scholars have also said that that perfume was set apart for her wedding night. Now, this is a former prostitute with $50,000 worth of perfume. Why would a former prostitute have perfume that she's never used with any other encounter with any other man set aside? I was praying about this, and I got, why would she do that? She's basically tricking herself while she's being used and abused by all these men. Before she had the seven demons cast out of her by Jesus and all that, she's having these illicit encounters with men, and one, she's thinking, one day I'm going to meet the man that's going to make all this worth it. And so she had to trick herself into a different system of award or reward so she could check out and not be in the room when she was having these encounters with the men that she was with. You know, just to be authentic and tell you something a little bit about myself. I remember back in the day, when, it was in the 80s, went to a strip club with some friends of mine. And I'm there, and my, one of my friends paid for one of the girls to come over and dance at our table. And we began to talk to her. And all of a sudden, my little Michelob I was drinking, it, that buzz, it just died off. You know why? As we talked to her, she was answering us with answers to questions we were not even talking about. She was in a totally different place. Then I realized, oh, my God, she is so humiliated. Being here, she's not here in this moment. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's mother. I just, it just it, it messed me up. I realized she had to totally check out to be where she was. Never went back to another strip club again. So Mary breaks into this room with this costly perfume. You know why she did that? She's looking at Jesus and thinking about all that he had done for her life. And she's not thinking about the utilitarian purpose for the perfume and how she can make more money from it by just selling it. She's thinking to herself, I'm never, ever going to meet another man that's ever going to mean this much to me. And she takes that perfume and she ministers to Jesus. And she pours out that perfume. She pours out that all over him. 
And the disciples with the consumer mentality, you know what they were doing? They were looking at that with their lemon juice on their face, thinking they knew it all. And they said, hey, we could have sold that. We could have used that. What a waste. Jesus said, no. What she's doing to me is a good and beautiful thing. Sometimes we see some people come up doing worship and we think, oh, you know, it don't take all that. And why are they crying so hard? And why are they jumping and praising like that? People are criticizing and looking around with their lemon juice on their face and like, oh, it doesn't take all that, you know. God, And Jesus says, leave them alone. What they're doing to me is a good and beautiful thing. Some things are meant to be adored and not used. Jesus is one of them. He's meant to be adored and not used. So I said all that to say this. Paul understood the purpose for the anointing. And he wanted to please Jesus with his life. He wanted to go and minister to the Jews. That was, that was the crowd that sought to minister to the Jews. But Jesus said, no, would you go to the non-Jews? Would you go to the Gentiles? And it wasn't just that Paul ministered to these Gentiles like Trophimus from Ephesus just because out of duty, he went to a place where he earnestly, sought for their salvation, and he loved them. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, 9, Paul says, having so fond of an affection for you, talking about the Gentiles, having so fond of an affection for you, I sought not just to give you the gospel, but my very own life. And he could have stopped there, but then he said, because you become so very dear to me. I'm blown away by Paul's first relationship revelation. And his first revelation, Relationship revelation is this. You got to go beyond the walls to reach the ones to which you're called. In that temple, there was this wall where no non-Jew could go behind. And there was actually an inscription on it that says, no non-Jew can go behind this wall. No Gentile can go behind this wall. If you do, you defile the holy place. And you could be killed. And if a Jew took him behind the wall, they could be killed. It's not that Paul took him behind that wall because he respected their ordinances so much. It was this, that he was so close to this non-Jew that it made all the religious folks feel very uncomfortable. Who are you hanging around that's making all religious folks feel uncomfortable? So Paul, later on, he's almost beat to death because of this. But he, later on, he's in a Roman jail cell, and he's writing letters to churches. And then he starts thinking about Trophimus from Ephesus, and he's writing a letter to his cousins, the Ephesians. And he says, you know what? I need to let them know this. So in Ephesians 2.13, he had enough love for them to let them know, oh, yeah, y'all remember that dividing wall that I was accused of taking Trophimus behind? Jesus already tore down that wall in his flesh. Y'all don't have to worry about that. You have access to the living God. I began to weep when I saw that because I realized, oh, my God, that he had such a love for these people. That he, be, he was willing to be beat to death to be associated with them. And then I thought about, oh, my God, 
who am I willing to risk my life for, risk my reputation for, that doesn't look like me, think like me, or vote like me, and take them on the other side of the wall of my home, the wall of my church, the wall of whatever. Who am I willing to risk my life for to take them on the other side of the wall so they can encounter the living God? Right? So he said, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-family, all that, y'all. Vote biblical values. We got to do that. Run people for office. We better do that too. We got to be salt that restrains the evil that the devil's trying to release through every kind of law and ordinance. And we got to put people in place. But at the same time, it's important who we vote for, but it's really more important how we represent the one we live for. And we got to love what he loves and hates what he hates. And he loves some of those people struggling with our identity issues. And if we don't take them with a, into a God encounter... Have your corporate encounter. Have your daily encounter, but then take it into a encounter with somebody else. We have to do that. So, and we have to contend for greater glory. And Paul knew on the other side of that wall was a table. Had a dream about the table. In this dream, I'm in a room about 10 to 12 people, and I'm looking for the chair to sit at in the room, but there were no chairs, and the table was really low. The only way to sit at the table was to sit on the floor. And in the dream, this young man starts talking about his love for God. And all of a sudden, the presence of God breaks into the room in such a powerful way. My cell phone breaks and cracks and crumbles right in my hands. And in the dream, the presence of the Lord breaks in. The glory cloud comes into the room in the dream. We all see it together. But more than anything, everybody's just overwhelmed by the love of God in this dream. And the, and the fear of the Lord came into the room. I woke up from the dream, and in the presence of the Lord is there in my bedroom. I'm sobbing and I'm weeping. And the Lord gave me this for the interpretation. There were no chairs in that room because this is not the, this is not the time to be looking for your position. The chair with the corner office. Humility and hunger will get you in the room where revival is going to break out. And the leadership table for that, the way you sit at that leadership table is this way. You have to go low. You have to humble yourself to get at this leadership table. The cell phone represented all of our distractions. There's coming something so powerful with the glory of the Lord being revealed, it's going to take away all of our distractions. But the other thing the Lord showed me is this. It's our access to social media. There are social media influences who are going to be known less for who's following them and more for who they're following the Lord. In other words, they're going to be known less for their crowds and more for the cloud of God's presence. Is there anybody here, you're a social media influencer? Stand up. If you, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. Stand up. Y'all put your hands on them right now. If you're standing around them, put your hands on them right now. Father, first of all, as a church, we repent for saying that God can't use you on social media. We repent for our religious mindset. But, Lord, I'm asking in Jesus' name that in their corporate encounters and their daily encounters, Lord, that they, will be, they, will be come, they come under the influence of your power and your grace so powerfully that people will come out of darkness into the, your marvelous light 
and the influence of the kingdom of heaven will be upon them. Souls will be saved. Lives will be changed. In the name of Jesus, that you there will be a breakout on social media through what they're carrying in this hour. God, I thank you for these influences, that they are influenced, Lord, with the love of God, and they encounter people with the kingdom of heaven. Breakouts, Lord, let there be revival breakouts on social media through them in the name of Jesus. Come on, give the Lord a clap on a shout. It's going to happen. It's already happening. So, because on the other side of the wall, there's that table. I'll tell you my table story real quick. Most of y'all know the story of my family and the kettle pot in my family where slaves used to pray underneath them for freedom. I've been taking that around the country for years to talk about the prayer bowls in heaven. Right? They use that pot to cover their voices so the master wouldn't hear them praying. But literally, there's a prayer bowl over your family. There's a prayer bowl over Fort Worth. There's a prayer bowl over this nation. God's looking for a new generation to resource the prayer bowls. I had this dream with Dr. King in it where God dealt with me about unforgiveness issues. My friend Lou Engle said, share that dream at the Lincoln Memorial on MLK celebra Celebration Day. There happened to be a white guy who was led to that prayer gathering because he had a dream. He had a dream about a man named Lou Engle. They were praying for revival and the ending of abortion. He said, who and what is a Lou Engle? He didn't know he existed. <laughs> Found out it was a real person. <laughs> and so he came to that gathering. He and I became friends. We've been friends for 18 years now. Well, fast forward. That white friend of mine, Matt Lockett, found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. So we're like, man, what a cool coincidence. I got this kettle pot where slaves pray for freedom. You have this house where General Lee fought his last battle. Wow, what a cool coincidence. But then we stumbled on more research, and we learned that it was his family who owned my family where the kettle pot came from. And we met at the Lincoln Memorial, both led by dreams, to the place where Dr. King said, now I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood because God is saying this is the year of the table. This is the year of the table. And we can sustain the glory that's going to be poured out if we sit at tables together and learn more about God and each other together. Because on the other side of that wall, the most holy place is the Holy of Holies. Y'all put up that slide of the, of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. This is it here. Remember, it had the poles in it. I love how Pastor Atlanta talked about how they got it back. David brings it back in 2 Samuel 6. Tries to bring it back first. Remember Uzzah puts out his hand to steady the ark and he's smote. He gets cut in half. So David parks that thing for, for three months. He's like, how do I bring this back to me? Then he realized God won't let you carry glory in man-made method ways. So he realizes God wants to be, wants to have weak human beings to carry the glory on their shoulders. This thing weighed about 700 pounds. Pastor Landon talked about it last time. Can you imagine the last person they broke out on, you know, the presence of God broke out on it. Can you imagine how with much fear and trepidation they brought this thing back, right? And so as you can see, it can slide back and forth on the poles. So Bible says they had six people. Their job was to carry it. 
And so maybe they had one in the middle. I don't know. They probably had one in the front while the other four were pulling and the other one in the back to make sure everything was right. Can you imagine the level of communication going to a whole other level with these guys? He's under one side. He's like, hey, 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 Jackson, how's your side? I'm good. Rabinowitz, what's your side look like? Ichiro, what's your side look like? Hey, Martinez, what's your side look like? You know. I had to get everybody in there, right? <laughs> We're not going to lose anybody this time, fellas. Listen, in the 90s, y'all know when the glory broke out, we lost families. There are churches that are not around today because the relationship network wasn't strong enough to carry the glory that God was that God put. We're not going to lose anybody this time, y'all. We're not bypassing the family table. We're not bypassing the relationship table. We're going to steward this thing the right way because we want the generations to be a part of this. So, But the thing that tripped me out, y'all, was like six steps, stop, offer up a sacrifice, like an oxen and a lamb. Sounds like a lot. But can you imagine them doing that for 10 miles? So that's the debate. Did they do it for 10 miles? Because we hear about them doing it in the beginning, and then at the end, he sacrificed seven. Seven is the number for completion. Six is the number for man. So we can understand him repenting along the way for trying to do things man's way. But he did do that every six steps, stop and do a sacrifice. So if you were going to map it out, us learners, you know how we are. <laughs> 10 miles, that's 30,000 steps about. 30,000 steps, so if it's every six steps, that's 5,000 stops to sacrifice 5,000 oxen and 5,000 calves. That's 10,000 animals. So if that was the case, this probably looked like some cattle drive from Chisholm Trail or something <laughs> with a whole company of peace in a cattle drive. And if you had a drone overlooking the whole thing, all you would see was just like blood, you know, blood, fire, and smoke for 10 miles, a whole trail of it. But the question is, did he do that? So I was praying about it, and I was looking at all the debates online about it. Then I realized, hold up, what did Solomon do when he dedicated the temple? He sacrificed double that of David. He sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep and goats. So maybe he did what he heard his daddy did. And we want a quick fix for how we're going to bring revival back. We think it's going to be easy. One, two, three steps. No, it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take somebody in intercession. It's going to take somebody in labor. It's going to take intimacy with God and each other. The God is on the move right now, believe me. So a lot of that groundwork has already been laid. But God's looking for smoke. Every time God smelled burning flesh for no sacrifices... Wasn't just anything. He said there's a sweet savor in the nostrils of the Lord. In other words, every time God smelled burning flesh, he knew somebody was confessing, somebody was repenting. And when he smelled burning flesh of those animals, he said, oh, I can come closer to my children now. That's why I was a sweet savor to them. So God started dealing with me about this because the 33rd day of my fast with all y'all, that's in real country, didn't it? All y'all. My 33rd day of the fast, at this encounter, I wasn't asleep. This is not a dream. I was on my way to a prayer meeting for a friend of mine, leading a prayer meeting for him. 
and I'm walking out of my bedroom, and all of a sudden, I start coughing because I inhaled smoke. And, it, you know, you ever have smoke from a, like a fireplace burn your lungs? That's what I felt. I got mad, honestly, because the fire department came to our house two months earlier because the kids set off the fire alarm by accident by leaving the shower on. It got too hot. And the steam set off the fire alarm. I mean, they were nice, but the firemen were like, uh, the next time is going to be a fine. So I'm thinking about my money. And I'm cantankerous because I've been fasting. And so I was like, <coughs> you know, I'm coughing. I was like, hey, De Havilland, you know, you're going to set off the alarm. Matter of fact, why do you have the fireplace on anyway? It's too hot. Open up the flute or something because the smoke is coming in there. She said, there's no wood in the house and there's no fire in the fireplace. I said, well, you're on the phone again and you forgot about something on the stove and you're about to burn the house down. And she said, there's nothing on the stove. Your attitude sucks. <laughs> Repent. I said, well, I'm coughing smoke. I checked the iron. The iron was unplugged and cold. So I get in the car, driving to the prayer meeting, and all of a sudden I'm coughing from smoke again. My chest is burning. I thought, you know, there's something going on with the car. I called the wife to see if there's, you know, if she noticed anything wrong with the car. Then she said this, Mr. Ford, what if you're on fire? But at the same time she said that, I heard the Lord say this, I'm looking for a living sacrifice. And I wept, I actually wept for, I wept for days. Then I realized God was letting me understand what the priests went through. Can you imagine all the smoke from all those sacrifices? Then I realized the first time God revealed himself to his people, it was as smoke. He, re he delivers the children of Israel from Egypt. He wants to bring them to Mount Sinai where he met Moses and he tells Moses, have them consecrate themselves. And he said this to him. He said, I want to I raise up a nation of priests before me. Have them consecrate themselves. It was never God's desire to have Aaron and his sons be the only priests. I want a nation of priests before me. Have them consecrate themselves for three days. No matter relations. Wash your clothes fast and come. I want to reveal myself to you. So they show up and they see Mount Sinai and they feel the earthquake and they see uh, the lightning and they see the thunder and they saw the smoke, all the smoke. And they said to Moses, uh, Moses, we're good. We don't want all the smoke. And then what the young folks say now, we don't want all the smoke. And from that day forward, God's people were never referred to again as a nation of priests until the New Testament. In other words, they forfeited the reward of their consecration. The reward of their consecration is not clothes they couldn't wear three years ago. The reward of their consecration was not even better communication in their marriage. The reward of their consecration was to go into the smoke and the encounter of the living God and go into a deeper level of intimacy with him in the fear of the Lord. It was to be an anointed people who are set apart in the intimacy with him. But they were afraid of the Lord. So it's one thing to have the fear of the Lord. It's another thing to be afraid of the Lord. When you're afraid of the Lord, you don't want to be exposed. You don't want to confess. You just use your consecration like lemon juice and think God won't see the real, the surveillance reel of your life and all the stuff that's going on. 
But in the fear of the Lord, you know what the fear of the Lord looks like? The fear of the Lord says this, I'm afraid to live my life without you. Ask Moses in Exodus 33. God says, I'll send my angel before you. Y'all, I have success, but I'm not going with these rebellious people. And Moses says, oh, God, I don't need an angel. I need you. I want your presence. If your presence doesn't go up with us, do not take us up from this place. I fear living without you. See, what they didn't realize is that the one that they feared the most is the one who loved them the most. And he loved them so much that he'd rather die than spend eternity without them. That's what Jesus' death on the cross was all about. And from that moment on, they knew God's acts, but no, Moses knew God's ways. They knew God through answered prayer. Moses knew what to pray and why. And that's where God wants to take us. Because that's what's on the other side of the wall for us at Mercy Culture. Jesus on the Via Della Rosa. That's where he's carrying the cross and he's on his way, mile and a half walk. With the cross, crown of thorns in his head, beaten and bloodied. In the spirit realm, he leaves a trail of blood, fire, and smoke. Just like David. Caiaphas, the high priest, a couple of days before that, meets with Jesus and he gets man and he tears his tunic. Every Messianic rabbi scholar I've talked to said that when he tore his tunic, that tunic was never to be torn. He disqualified himself from being a high priest. So guess who the high priest is on that Passover? Jesus is. And at the time that they're offering up the sacrifice, the Jewish priests would make sure that lamb was spotless and clean. And as they would burn the sacrifice, they had to stand there and watch the smoke. And when the smoke was extinguished, they would hold their hands up and say, Zenigma. Guess who was saying basically the same thing at the same time? Jesus on Passover, his hands stretched out. But then what's that he smells? Oh, it's the anointing from Mary of Bethany. And for the joy that was set up before him, he endured. He didn't take the sponge to anesthetize his pain. He said, no, I'm going to embrace it all because I'm going to have a whole generation of worshipers. And ministers who will know how to minister to me so I can serve the lost and dying world. And she also anointed him to be the high priest. And Jesus, with his arms stretched out, said, it is finished. Guess what Zenigmar means? It is finished. So he's our great high priest, and he showed us what it's like to be a living sacrifice. Paul, in Romans 12 and 1 says, what? I beseech you by the mercies of God to give your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and blameless before the Lord. So I remember being on the other side of the wall of a powerful move of the Spirit. It was a time frame in the, in the 90s where revival was breaking out. But I'd been burnt 
I went from one church that didn't believe in the gifts of the spirit and was very religious and legalistic. Then I went to a charismaniac church that was more legalistic than that church. I went from don't raise your hands to you better raise your hands. Don't speak in tongues to you better speak in tongues. I was so tired. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, the more I learn, I'm just going to know God. I'm going to know more about God now. That's how I get saved. But I didn't know him experientially. I, I, I got to the place where I stopped believing in the gifts because I was so hurt. Stopped believing in the gifts of the spirit and everything. And I actually went to a cemetery of a seminary. And they actually taught that the only way revival was going to come to America is when the layman learned Greek and Hebrew. So my sister, during that time period, told me about a church that was experiencing revival called Calvary Cathedral. And she was explaining the sustained weekly meetings, daily meetings that were happening where thousands of people, even from around the world, were coming because something like what, ha what happened at Asbury was happening here, but it looked a lot more like Azusa Street. And I told my sister, I said, well, you know what, all I've been studying about all this is off. And I'm going to show you how wrong all this stuff is. We prayed for 20 minutes for God's protection. And I put my lemon juice on and I showed up. And pulled out my notepad and my Greek-Hebrew study Bible. My sister's right here, she'll tell you. That's what that. And so, worship is going on. I'm waiting to critique the preacher. This little lady named Jenny Grind starts singing a song. And then all of a sudden, they had to drag her off the stage because she just, the glory of God fell. And they had to drag her off the stage. And about that time, I'm sitting in my chair and I felt electricity hit me on the top of my head and it went to the soles of my feet. I couldn't keep my arms on the armrest any longer. And I just began to weep. Even just thinking about it. It messed me up. I looked at my sister. I said, what is this? She said, what's what? <laughs> Nothing happened to her. The weighty presence of God stayed on me for three days. I spent three months in scripture trying to figure out what happened to me. Then I came across this understanding about when God showed up in the temple with Solomon and the all the smoke came, and the glory of God fell, and the priest couldn't stand and minister because of the glory. That word glory is not Shekinah, it's kabod. It means weighty presence. We went through seasons of revival in Fort Worth because of Bob Nichols' sacrifice. Oh, I never knew a man more hungry for God. <laughs> He's still so hungry for a move of the Spirit. And we just became carriers of glory. Like we would be in grocery stores and the presence of God would be on us so strong and people would start weeping in grocery stores. Y'all know, y'all remember. And they'd be like, what, what's going on with me? And we'd 
explain the gospel, they get saved. We'd be walking in grocery stores, and the presence of God be on so thick and heavy, demons would manifest. We'd cast demons out of people. We call it presence evangelism. Because the glory of God rested on us so much. And there was this one meeting I went to. Right on the other side of the wall, something powerful was happening. It was a conference, 1995 or so. You know, I used to have the walled-off petitions where you have on one side, one speaker. So I was in the room trying to learn about the prophetic. This guy was a well-known guy. Well, I was just trying to get a prophetic word, to be honest. Aren't we all, to be honest? <laughs> so everybody was in his room, but it was filled to capacity. So by default, they had to sit other people, they couldn't sit there. They had to sit in the other side, in this other room. Some unknown guy, we didn't know who he was, some guy named Tommy Tenney. Somebody pulled hit this split where he preached somewhere in revival. We didn't, we didn't know who he was. Walled off petition, and all of a sudden, the wall starts shaking. And then we hear something like an airplane and a freight train trying to take off at the same time. Our little prophet was like, hey, well, maybe we should just stop doing what we're doing and go next door. <laughs> He's a prophet, right? But then he finally said, no, seriously, let's stop doing what we're doing and go next door. We went next door, bodies were everywhere. The glory of God fell. And you could literally hear the wind, like a mighty rushing wind. It was in that room. It wasn't air conditioning. I feel like our church is right on the other side of the wall <laughs> of a major move of the Spirit. <laughs> I thank God for our growth and all the things he's done with his presence, but I feel like God is preparing us for glory, realm, revival. We've been in little R revival. I believe God's about to take us to capital R revival. <laughs> so I, two years later, I got a hold of that cassette tape cassette tape, you millennials and Gen Z people, it's about this big and you stick a hole in it to fix the tape. <laughs> and so before it broke, I, I digitized it, I put it on my phone. I've been listening to it for 30 years. Do y'all want to hear what I heard on the other side of the wall? If y'all don't mind, cue that up and then we'll, we'll pray.
literal mighty rushing wind. God responds to hunger. That's what happened in Asbury. That's what happened then, but God wants to do that, I believe. Now. I feel like God is looking for kindling. He's looking for a living sacrifice. Everybody wants revival fire, but God is saying, who wants to be revival fuel? If that's you, come forward. Let's, let's pray. However you want to respond. I heard God saying to no secondhand smoke. I say no secondhand smoke, I mean, you hang around somebody else. It's been smoking, you know, it's, it lingers only for a little while. Some of you here that need to get right with God. And because of the smoke of your praying mama, the smoke of your praying father, your, your friends, you got secondhand smoke. God's looking for you to be the one. Holiness is still right. Shacking up is still wrong. Sexual stand is still wrong. But if you're willing to be vulnerable and let God have every area, do you know doing this fast, I confess stuff to my wife, things I never thought about. I feel cleaner than I ever have in my own life and my marriage is better than it's ever been because I refuse to stay on the other side of the wall of the next great move of God. I refuse to stay on the other wall with lemon juice on my face thinking that I have everything all right, thinking that I have everything okay. Everybody is blind and they won't admit it. But if you admit your blindness, God says, I'll help you see. So Father, right now we come before you. We come before you and we offer up incense. We offer up smoke. We bring our bodies to be a living sacrifice before you. And we ask you forgiveness, Lord. We repent of our religious hypocrisy. If you need to repent over having a religious spirit, God says now's the time to deal with it right now. God, forgive me while I play games in your presence. Forgive me for my religious mindset, God, thinking I knew more about you than this person or that person or whatever. Knew more about revival than this person. God, we haven't seen anything yet. Forgive me for thinking more about the five or 6,000 people that come through these doors and the four or 500,000 people in Fort Worth that still need to encounter your presence. God, take me on the other side of the wall. Break my heart for the things that break your heart until we love what you love and hate what you hate for real, God, for real. God, I want, a, I want a no sweat ministry. <laughs> I want a no sweat ministry. 
Forgive me caring, caring more about what people are saying about me on Facebook and Twitter and social media and Instagram. Forgive me for being careful, not even speaking truth because I'm afraid of what this person thinks or that person thinks. God, I'm so tired of sweating it out over people's opinions. Forgive me, forgive us for settling for ministry without intimacy with you. Just because we are knowing it can accomplish a few things. Well, you're standing at the door waiting to move from visitation to habitation, but nobody's ministering to you. <laughs> Forgive us for ministering to each other more than ministering to you. Oh, God, we want to please you in this season. We want to please you in our worship. We want to please you in our songs. But, Lord, more than anything, we ask, show us your glory. I thank you for the anointing. I thank you for it, Lord, but it still smells like man. Something's got to come into the church that doesn't have the smell of man on it. Would you bring the fear of the Lord back in the church, God, for real? We're so thankful that the one that we fear the most is the one who loves us the most. And we're afraid of living without you, God. And we bless every place where you're moving right now. God, we bless what you're doing at Asbury, but show us your glory. We bless what you're doing at Lee University, but God, show us your glory. We thank you for past revivals and awakenings. We thank you for the first great awakening, but God, show us your glory. We thank you for the second great awakening, but show us your glory. We thank you for Azusa Street, but God, show us your glory. Show us your expression of what glory looks like here at Mercy Culture, here at Fort Worth. Once again, God. We say that you are the reward of our consecration. You are the reward of our 40-day fast. Not, not better fitting clothes. <laughs> not better physique. <laughs> you are the reward of our fasting. We want all the smoke, God. We want all the smoke. Teach us to fear the Lord. Show us your glory. Increase our hunger level, God. Somebody thinking that out there right now with a religious spirit saying, ah, oh, you know, it don't take all that. I hear the Lord saying right now, leave them alone. What they're doing to me is a good and beautiful thing. more, Lord. 
the presence of the Lord just giving me more heavier and heavier. Thank you. Heavier and heavier. We say more, Lord. Repossess your church. Take it out of the hands of man. Evan Roberts said, oh, God, bid me in the place of prayer and had an open vision and saw the praying hands raised up over wells. And he saw 100,000 people swept into the kingdom in the Welch revival. That happened in three months. What would happen in Fort Worth? Just let your mind go there. What would happen in Fort Worth? If over 100,000 people got saved in just three months. Let your mind race thinking about it. Show us your glory. Can we dream with God just for a minute? What would Fort Worth look like? What would MC look like under the weight of the glory? The presence has been amazing, but God wants to bring weighty glory here. I don't know what that's going to look like. All I know is I want whatever the wine skimmer for revival they want to release through this house, I want it. I want to go on the other side of that wall. I refuse to stay here with a consecration. I refuse to stay here with a better fitting suit. I refuse to stay here. Show me your glory, God. You're meant to be adored and not used. <laughs> we pour it out, God. Raise up, lay down lovers. <laughs> we have no agenda except for you. Jesus walked into that temple. And he turned over all the money changers' tables. But then when he saw where they were selling the doves, he got even more intense. You know why? Doves represent his presence. And he's tired of people merchandising his presence. He's tired of people merchandising the anointing. He's tired of the consumer mentality. We want to shrink wreck everything and sell it and use God all the time. Not everything needs to be in another book or another song. Some of them just need burnt offerings under him. <laughs> it's not meant to be used, but to be adored. <laughs> and Jesus shouted, my house should be a cloud, a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And then something powerful happens. The blind, the halt, and the lame, they all came to Jesus and he healed them all. You would think that a blind man would be running the opposite direction from a, from a madman who's turning everything over. But he knew that Jesus was fighting for him. The lame knew that he was fighting for them. And there's two things that were happening. The religious people who wanted the religious system were running away from the glory of God. But the people who are hungry for a real move of God realized, no, he's just getting all this stuff out of the way. He's fighting for me. There were two crowds running in opposite directions. 
Those who want a professional religion, who want to sweat it out, with lemon juice on their face, they ran away from the manifest presence. But those who are hungry for raw God ran to him. God, I just hope I'm in the right crowd. I want to be running towards your presence in this season. I don't care about my dignity. I just want your deity. I want more of your presence in my life. I want to see more of your glory revealed over a generation. In the name of Jesus, they're trying to give puberty blockers to our kids. God, show us your glory. something more powerful than rebellion over a generation. God, show us your glory. Kids struggling with sexual identity issues and suicide, show us your glory. Something has to change. Something's got to change, God. Show us your glory. And God will be the fuel if you'll bring the fire. <laughs> we'll be the fuel if you bring the fire. Show us your glory. I don't even know how to pray when I'm praying, God, but I'm just asking you, show us your glory. I thank you for Asbury, but God, what about Fort Worth? Over here, over here, over here, over here, God. Over here. Son of David, have mercy on us. Would you restrain what we deserve and give us what we don't deserve? God, we don't deserve revival. But in your mercy, in the midst of wrath, remember mercy, show us your glory. David, have mercy. Have mercy on Fort Worth. Have mercy. Mercy, God, mercy.
we're never gonna meet another man that's ever gonna mean to us more than you. You're worth us pouring it all out. You're worth us giving it all up. It's no sacrifice, God, take our lives. We wanna know you more, but do you know us? Emmanuel Koto said that to me on the fast. He was praying, God, I want to know you. And then he thought, oh my God, but God, do you really know me? It's time to get real and vulnerable and authentic before the living God. And it's time to confess our faults one to another because here's the deal. The degree that you're not willing to confess your fault to a person, you made an idol out of the opinion of people so powerfully that you fear people's opinion more than God's opinion of you. That's why confession is so key. God wants a clean priesthood with no other agenda except him, no other motive except him. We're gonna please him and serve other people under the glory of God. We're gonna take people on the other side of the wall. We're gonna encounter God on the other side of the wall and carry glory inside of us. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, know you not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That word temple is the Greek word naos. It means innermost sanctuary. In other words, you're God's holy of holies. We have glory in these jars of clay. I don't understand all the dynamics of it and how it all works. I just know that God works through crackpots. He works through broken vessels. Something about your brokenness releases heaven and openness. Show us your glory. Holiness is still right. Show us your glory. You're meant to be adored and not used. Show us your glory. Come, Holy Spirit, more, more. You're not right with God. Today will be a good time to get right with God. The fear of the Lord is coming back to the church. You don't know how much time you have left. Hell is real. God loves you so much though that he'd rather die than spend eternity without you. You only have to come down here, right where in your seat, right where you're watching online, right there. God can meet you right where you are. He wants to reveal his glory to you. He wants to give you a new life right now. I'm not gonna say it's gonna be a bed of roses or it's gonna be your best life now and it's gonna be easy peasy, no. Persecution is coming back to the church. It's happening everywhere else around the world. It's coming to America. Take up your cross and come and get them. That's my altar call. Take up your cross and come and get them. He loves you. The one you should fear the most is the one who loves you the most. He wants to reveal his purpose for designing you. 
Give glory to the King of glory. Give him your life. Give him what's due him. By grace, you've been saved. But you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because this is a serious thing. It's a serious time. It's about lordship.
to trying to steward Mercy Culture Services, where we have the practical of children's ministry and it's two o'clock, but we have the spiritual and the fact that God is moving. Amen? So, this is what we're going to do. It's two o'clock with love. If you've got kids down there, go grab them and come back. We're going to steward the presence. But this is one thing I want you to recognize. In Judges 6, Gideon is talking to the angel of the Lord. And he talks and he says, I, I know all the things the forefathers have told me about all the great exploits of God. But he doesn't talk about the fact that the fathers told him about the fear of the Lord. And if all we do is tell the next generation about what God has done, but we don't teach them to steward the fear of the Lord, we've missed it. We've missed it. And so in this moment, we're gonna continue to worship. We're gonna continue to go, continue to cry out for the fact that we want the fear of the Lord. My ask is if you have kids, go grab them and bring them back because if they don't get this, revival dies in one generation. And this is supposed to be generational. So let's just lift up our hands and go back into this right now. Oh, so 
Hope you've enjoyed this message from Mercy Culture Church. If this podcast has blessed you, we'd like to encourage you to share it with a friend. To learn more about us, find us on social media and online at mercyculture.com.